0: Came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect
1: who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organisation, the new IRA. Freedom
0: itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth.
1: And freedom will be defended.
0: You're listening to part two of My Chat with retired Colonel Len Wassel of the British Royal Military Police. If you haven't listened to episode one I highly recommend you pause this episode and listen to that one first. In part two, Colonel Wasson and I talk about the specialised unit SIB and the challenges of investigations during conflict and the complex work that must go on whilst war continues on around military police officers. Next, on Protect and Serve. In 1983, uh, you were promoted to sergeant and you were transferred to the Royal Military Police Investigation Branch, commonly referred to, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, SIB. For, for our listeners who are going to be all over the world, could you just tell us what SIB is and then just talk us through your time uh, in West Germany and uh, that period of your, your career?
1: Yeah, so... Um... The, the Royal Military Police has had from the 1940s, it, it, on you know, the 28th of February, 1940 was the day it was founded, from 19 detectives from the Metropolitan Police, it, it founded its own special investigation branch, the SIB. So, and, and then it grew obviously during the war, Second World War, uh, and, and it it's continued to serve right through to today. Um, unlike detectives where you would go you know within your force you would be a, a you would go and do a, a tour as a dc and then go back to uniform if you promoted to sergeant and then return as a ds so you would pop you know you would try once if you followed the the sib route once you transferred that was you you were permanently an investigator so you 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 know there was no no suggestion of you going back and doing a, a uniform role um and and you were expected to specialise within that. So you were specifically trained. The training married that, you know, mirrored that of our civilian detectives. You did your initial course. You did your qualifying course, and you you did uh, what you know we called it an attachment, but you you would call it an aid. Uh, period of aid where you were a temporary DC and we did all of those things uh, as part of our training then you went through a selection because it did involve a substantive promotion to sergeant um because the minimum rank in the SIB was sergeant because of the nature of what they had to deal with mm. um so having been having gone through that that takes about 18 months of training and then be selected for promotion was a huge rush And then finding out that I was being posted to West Berlin in 1983 at the height of the Cold War um, was was both frightening um, and exciting. And and of course, I'd, I'd not long since been married and we were expecting our first child at that time. So the whole thing, this was a pack up from UK. All of our life went into wooden crates called MFO boxes. Anyone who'd served and moved at that time will know the joy of packing those uh, and getting them picked up. And then they got crated. They could take six to eight weeks before your house arrived. Um, And then going out to West Berlin, and I remember vividly the journey across Germany. I drove over, so I stayed with friends in Osnabrück in northwest Germany. And then I traveled to Helmstedt which was on the inner German border, the Iron Curtain that ran from the Baltic all the way uh, down to the, um, I think it's the Adriatic or or, or certainly the Black Sea. Um, But you got to Helmstedt, you then went through Checkpoint Alpha, uh, where you had a briefing and you had a specific route of 104 miles to drive and three turnings to make. Because uh, if you got off route, you got sacked and sent out of Berlin, which is never a good thing before you've even got there. So you had to stay on route. But then you had to go through Checkpoint Alpha, which was, I mean, it was the, 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 the Cold War, Russian armed guards, barriers coming up and down, kill zones, everything. And you were just transiting through that. And then you drove up through East Germany, up to Berlin, and into Checkpoint Bravo where you were greeted uh, and that, you know, I arrived in Berlin, um, arrived in Berlin on the, uh, on the Monday evening. And I started work Tuesday morning as a, as a brand new Sergeant and started to, to, to deal with it. You were expected then to take on the, um, the stock and trade uh, of the lower end cases, you know, but I mean, that included grievous bodily harms, uh, you know, violence offenses, um, Lower end sexual offences and um, all manner of theft and thievery um, and misconduct. Those are the ones that you were expected to do at the time. So that, that was where I started.
0: These are offences which are, are being alleged and committed by British service personnel. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, yeah, we we were there. So in 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 that sense, the Royal Military Police is the county force of the army. The Royal Navy Police, obviously, for the Royal Navy, and the Royal Air Force Police, likewise. So we were the county force, we were there to police our community. Now that's civilians as well. So so you know, there's the families. And and at that time, the 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 number of British personnel. Just British troops in Germany was um, was 250,000 troops in West Germany and and a brigade level, so uh, about 10,000 living in Berlin. And then of course you've got their families as well. So you know, you multiply that by three. So you've got you had a community in Germany, uh, West Germany, of about a million people that were being policed by you know uh, the, the, the military police. Um, in the normal sense, and it was normal policing. This was every day from uniform, patrolling, doing everything from traffic offences through to, um, and then ourselves when we were called out to deal with the, the more serious stuff.
0: I'm just interested to reflect on one particular case that you've uh, kindly shared with us, which is on your first week arriving in West Berlin, uh, you were woken up at 2am to a fairly serious uh, sexual offence allegation. Uh, to which you are joined by your colleagues, your senior officers. That's a, a very full-on, very full-on investigation, often involving a number of witnesses, sometimes many suspects, uh, depending on what the situation is. But please, talk us through that case. It sounds quite incredible, especially as you're just new into the area.
1: Yeah, I'm new into the area. It's the first week that I was uh, at, at, you know, on duty on my own without someone holding my hand and getting me used to, to operating in Berlin. Uh, and the knock on the door, uh, because I hadn't even had my phone installed at that point, came from one of the patrols who said, oh, there's an allegation of rape down in Spandau in Berlin, which is an area where the old Spandau prison was. Um, so, uh, and they said, oh, could you pick up the Sergeant Major and the Staff Sergeant? It were the, the other two investigators in the team, because the officer commanding it was a captain was on, on holiday at the time, so he wasn't uh, available um and i'd been with them earlier in the evening we'd been out for dinner um as as a as a team um and i i, I drove around and you know they they hadn't left they were still drinking so you know <laughs> and, but back in the 80s you know it, you know think life on mars this was this you know but that was normal so we i picked them up i was sober because i was on duty um and and uh Taking, I drove them down. We got to the crime scene. And the boss, he, he was switched on. I was the sergeant major. He was switched on straight away. And he said, right, you deal with the suspect. I'll deal with the, the victim. Uh, we'll find out what's going on. So the victim was a local lady from West Berlin. Um, and it turned out that there were seven separate suspects in an wow. allegation of a sexual offence against her. So, again, this is 1983. Um I had seen a sexual offences box during my training, uh, the, the old sexual offences kit, uh, which ours was sourced from the Metropolitan Police actually. Um, I had seen one and I'd looked through one. I'd never used one or had any real instruction on it. But by close of play that day, um, with myself and a, 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 a reservist, uh, Lieutenant Colonel from the Army Medical Corps, we'd conducted uh, seven full sexual offences examinations on these suspects. They'd been arrested, they'd been cautioned. Um, uh, I'd arrested seven people in one night. I'd cautioned them all. Uh, this is all being done in a good old fashioned police notebook. Every note, every exhibit is recorded in the notebook. It, it, it's really, you know, very mandralic process. Um, so I can remember, you know, it, it got to about nine o'clock the next night. And I'm back in my office with seven piles of bags, exhibit bags of clothes, of, of, of swabs and everything else. And then I had to bag those swabs into separate bags to be able to put them in the freezer because we had to transport them. The next, the next day they were flown to the, uh, the LGC lab in London and. Um, and then we began, I think I got about two hours kit by the time I'd written up my notes and everything else. and We'd done the initial reporting and we were back in and we had the first suspect in um, being interviewed. And the, the interviews back then were judges rules interviews. So, you know, it, it was um, very much uh, confrontational, you know, uh, and we got on with it. But then by the close of play, the second day, I have sort had of two hours kit now in, in, in going into my third day of work. Um, we'd done the initial interview on all of them, but um, it was a it was a massive introduction to serious crime. You know, the, 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 all crimes are serious if you're the victim, but this was a you know the, the the serious level of of crime that uh, that we were dealing with.
0: Obviously, when when you're overseas dealing with these particular issues, and there are serious allegations against British service personnel in a foreign country is there a kind of a political sphere operating in terms of having to brief up to very senior figures as to an allegation which you know which could be reputationally quite damaging for the service how did, is that a, is that a thought process you're going through in terms of managing that reputation is that something the bosses look after that's not really for you to worry about
1: Well, you have to be aware of it. You had to be aware of it. I mean, but given that the the authorities in West Berlin had had bedded in and had processes going back to 1945, Um, we had a, a, a group called the Public Safety Branch. Now, they did all the liaison with the public prosecutors and whatever. We had a really excellent working relationship with the West Berlin Police. So, but of course then there would be, because Berlin was such a goldfish bowl, this would be picked up by the press, the the local press, then the international press then the UK press. Um, So there was a pressure on us to get accurate information very rapidly briefed in uh, that would go in through the chain of command and back to the MOD um, very rapidly alongside that you're dealing with your german counterparts who i've got a great respect for the, the german police have it, it, you know that they, they their their professionalism and the way that they work is um is unique to germany but um you know that that they, they, they had that i learned a great deal from their approaches on, on the way that they deal with things and they were very open to we were we were uk policing has right been always been right at the very forefront of innovating, particularly in the forensics world and, and the likes, um, And um, we were we were very much advanced because we were operating at the same level as the UK civilian police would be at that time and using the same techniques and the same pro- procedures, etc. And, and the West Berlin police particularly uh, were very open to learning from those processes and understanding why we did that. The, the key difference was um, Continuity of evidence, the German law didn't require it. it if, if you were a police officer and you said that was the knife that was used, that was the knife that was used. You know? Wow. From the UK end, we'd have to mm. prove, we we got to take it back to the suspect. We, we're looking for, you know, fingerprints, blood trace, and everything else, and, and mm. um, cooperation. So there was a difference in approach around re- recovering that. And the West Berlin police were so good because they understood over the years, obviously having worked with their, 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 um, uh, the, the criminal police side, the CRIPO, they'd worked alongside the SIB for decades and they knew we had a different approach, but they understood and, and they were quite happy to step back. Um, and, and that's why the boss disappeared off to secure that evidence from the victim, because we couldn't get that. If, if you know, we had to work with the West Berlin police to do it. So you know that was that you know that was the entree, the first big case that I worked on as an SIB investigator.
0: I want to jump forward, if I can now, to probably most of your military career has been at quite senior ranks, and we'll get to probably the most senior one with the rank of Colonel very, very shortly. But I'm I'm very intrigued by your move in November 1998 when you headed off to Sandhurst for the Junior Staff and Command Course. Was this the start of your career really starting to accelerate through those promoted ranks and starting to establish that good base for leadership?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, the army has have a, has always had a good tradition of promoting or commissioning people from the ranks because you you know you keep in that technical skill and particularly with the background that we had, it, it had become a, a very normal thing. So. I'd commissioned in 94, I'd went, I, it, it, as an officer, I went back to a uniform role, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, I then went back to a, a, a SIB role, deployed out to Bosnia, um, and then came back into an administrative role as an adjutant, um, where I, I, I was responsible for sort of discipline and uh, the G1 or HR function. And then I got promoted to major having been through that and and unusually, I'd also been given the opportunity to convert my commission from a late entry, which is what if you've come through the ranks to a regular commission, which meant that I was on the same playing field as officers who'd gone through Sandhurst. So I had to do a bit of catch up. But um, on merit, uh, I'm told I got promoted to major. And as part of that, I had to go and do the junior staff and command course. Now, this is advanced leadership training. It it trains you to be a staff officer working at a major headquarters um, from a warfighting perspective, but also from uh, a day-to-day life perspective. But it also then starts to bed in your responsibilities and requirements of a a junior commander, effectively, uh, up to, um, uh, you know, and it's the baseline of officer training, for for command. So yeah, that was that was a six-month intensive course that 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 we did. Um, we started at Shrivenham on the technical side. Um, and, and you learn everything. It's joint, it's joint in the way that you did that. I also went did a module on combined combined arms warfare, how do you operate in a combined arms environment, things like that. To, so that my military knowledge was as technical, you know, was as up to date as it could be as, as I went forward to to my first command post.
0: Are you able to tell us a little bit about your work in Bosnia? Because obviously there was a lot going on in that part of the world, um, in, in certainly in the nineties. What sort of investigations are you undertaking there?
1: Well, we we deployed out. I deployed with the largest SIB section that since the Second World War, and we we, we deployed out into Bosnia when NATO uh, deployed in. We, we were slightly behind. Um, the fighting troops that went in. International pressure on the Serb forces has increased following last night's United Nations Security Council meeting, at which a draft resolution was discussed, allowing the use of force to protect humanitarian
0: aid getting into Bosnia. Fighting continues in many areas of Bosnia.
1: Biac is surrounded by Serb forces. People dodge mortar fire and shrapnel. Um, But we very quickly established that we had a range of things there was everything that affected the 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 force itself so the as you can imagine we this is the first time we started to deal with deaths from mine strikes vehicles hitting mines and this is where coming back you know bringing the deceased back recovering them bringing them back from a high threat environment then getting them back to the UK, and then at this time we had to engage with the coroner and also meet with families, and, and you know it's pre-family liaison. But these were the roles that you were having to do. So there were the death, there was the the normal, um, say, uh, stock and trade of violence and people falling out with each other. Um, there was theft and fraud whenever, and whenever a big military force moves, it moves with a lot of very shiny things, and people want to steal it, both locals and and, and within the force. Um, so you, you, we got involved in that. Um, but then once once the stabilisation had kicked in, um, and we were, they were starting to. Sort of normalised. It, it, it couldn't be normal in Bosnia. You, when we drove in, uh, the scenes that we saw were reminiscent of driving into Europe in nineteen in the nineteen forties. Uh, wow. You know, bombed out cities, people living in shelters, living underground. You could see troops that had been fighting. You know, you could see where they. You know, they, they had the thousand yard stare. You you know you you could understand where they'd be. So normal wasn't wasn't anything you were dealing with. But then of course. As the international community started to, to to get into Bosnia, things like the mass graves, we we, we supported the very early investigations into identifying uh, mass graves, and, and part of the team had to go off and deal with that, uh, along with you know forensic experts that were brought out from the UK, um, uh, and we were effectively the the. The, the most technically advanced going into bosnia um i mean one of the things that my team dealt with we we were all prepared because there was a lot of air movement um to, to be able to deal with this, with an air crash scene which we you know we'd previously both trained for and had uh, experience of um when the american 737 uh crashed at dubrovnik we were called forward by nato to deploy with all of our shelters and forensic know-how to provide the baseline for the US authorities to come in and, and secure secure the ground. So, you know, flying in on uh, armored CH-443 helicopters and being dropped onto a mountainside with your kit, um, with the road party taking sort of seven hours to get to you with the bulk of your equipment, um, and just providing that early thing. So everything from traffic accidents mine strikes um, to a major aircraft disaster these were the things that we that we encountered talk
0: us through that one because that's quite an interesting one that aviation incident you talk about the 737 coming down because not only is that an aircraft incident involving fatalities the fatalities involved in that are u.s senators what is just describe to us going to a scene like that and the challenges you face because Having done forensic crash investigation work myself, and having to deal with only light, cr- light aircraft aviation incidents, there is a totally different scenario when you're dealing with a large aircraft, large payloads of fuel, um, obviously large casualty rates. What's what was what's that scene like?
1: Um, when when we flew in, uh, I remember looking down through. I mean. The crash site was about 600 metres above sea level, on a mountain. Um, And the the French forces who had control of the area had provided the security around the route. The US forces had deployed US rangers to provide uh, cordon security. Um, and we were the first of the sort of specialists to come in and, and we set up a base camp at, at, at about five, you know, at, at about 100 metres below the crash site um, outside that. Um, and, you know, you, you, the basics kick in. It's you need to get control. So the cordon, where's the cordon? And you had they, they were still looking when we arrived, they were still looking for survivors. Um it was, you know, we were there, or they were looking to identify the dead. And to my horror, they had two helicopters hovering low. And I could see the helicopters were moving. Large. The downdraft was actually moving parts of the, um, of of the aircraft across the ground. Mm-hmm. So, of course, from an air, you know, understanding about air accident investigation, the distribution of that, aircraft tells you a great deal about it. So if that's moved, it tells you something different. So and we, we, you know, first thing we sort of said, you know, can we get the helicopters up? Um, the the other thing that we then discovered was there was a mine risk on that mountain. Wow. So every route into that mountain had to be mine cleared. So you needed engineers to come in and do a mine clearance to get. So, and of course, if they saw what they thought were the remains of an individual that you a route had to be cleared in. And, and this was something that even by this stage we were we were very used to with the, the various uh, high threat environments where mine strikes had happened on our own vehicles. And you've got, you know, deceased inside uh, you know a burnt out vehicle, but you can't get them out. And then not only... With things like that, with a with burnt out vehicle, you've not only got the risk of mines, you've got a risk of ammunition within the vehicle, which may have been compromised because of the heat of the explosion, whatever. So, you know, when, when investigators are sent forward to go and do that sort of work, it is it, it's not an environment or a sort of crime scene investigation that you would teach in uh, you know civilian civilian police officers to do. They would call in Aito, um or, or uh, they would call in you know a navy bomb disposal to deal with with things like that um but th- this th- this was routine for us
0: i'm I'm gonna jump a little bit ahead here and I'm, i'd am like to reflect you know probably two of the biggest conflicts that um our country has been involved in in the last two decades would probably be notably be iraq and afghanistan both conflicts have seeing us lose troops overseas today they lined the streets to pay tribute to the eight soldiers killed in afghanistan last week within 24 hours of each other a deadly betrayal three british troops have been killed by a renegade afghan soldier in southern Helmand province a terrible day for the british army a seemingly endless list of casualties reported in afghanistan and the bad news just kept on coming on the front line of a war which has claimed 184 UK service personnel in eight years of fierce fighting. A British soldier has died in Iraq while serving with the 2nd Battalion, the Duke of Lancaster's regiment. His family has been told... And and one of the major roles of your organisation within the military is to repatriate loved ones, to understand how things have occurred, to ensure that that process is complete and communicate your findings through to the coroner, and ultimately to families. Now, in two I'm just scooting ahead a little bit here. October 2012, you're promoted to Deputy Provost Marshal, uh, which in effect, if, if correct me if I'm wrong, is almost like a deputy commissioner at rank in terms of looking after the entirety of that organisation. What is the fundamentals? What are the important things? What are the pressures when we are at war in Afghanistan and Iraq of your roles and responsibilities in making sure loved ones get the answers they need to what has happened overseas to their sons and daughters.
1: That was um, in August 2010. I was promoted to full colonel and uh, took on the role as Deputy Provost Marshal Investigation. So I had I then had responsibility for policing and investigations across the whole army and 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 with certain tri service aspects. So. We'd sadly, by this stage, 2010, been at this for seven years in Iraq uh, from the 2003 war onwards. Um, so we, we were incredibly swept up in the way that we did it. And we developed a relationship and we developed processes whereby if, if an individual was killed, we focus on Iraq, if an individual was killed in Iraq, um, first of all, there's the issue of recovering And dealing with a crime scene because by after the ground war, we're not at war. We're in sustainability. So the people that are being brought back to the UK are coming back into the responsibility of the UK coroner. So the UK coroner has a duty to ensure that their death is properly investigated. That's what fell on the the service police, the Royal Military Police, and a collective unit of Royal Navy. IRAF and Army SIB investigators deployed on every deployment um, and, and, and their workload and the risks they took were enormous, unprecedented in uh, in, in sort of modern modern policing. It, 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 there's no comparison. So, so but you've got to deal with it, You know, that's where we perfected. And we took it from Northern Ireland. We perfected crime scene investigation in under 20 minutes. You sometimes had 20 minutes in a secure environment to do your whole scene. You know, the the CSIs and the investigators had to video, photograph and exhibit recover and then victim recover in those times um, and then get out, often under fire, uh, often at risk of mortar attack and, and, you know, the likes of things that are going on. This became the perceptual distortion, as that was normal. Um, Then the individual would come back we set up a process with the, the, the defense medical services, which were absolutely fantastic, top draw. Um, and it's the only place I know where a deceased remains would be completely CAT scanned. So we would have a complete CAT scan at, done in, uh, in Iraq before the, the, the remains returned. We would then conduct the investigation, we'd be going on, we would do a repatriation. So one of the investigators would accompany the body back. So or bodies, as was the case in some of these uh, for continuity, but also as part of the, you know, the dignity and respect I spoke about earlier, that they, these individuals were in our care. We were responsible. And, they, you know, the, the dignity and respect with which the armed service will move its fallen brothers and sisters is is beyond comparison. And it, you know, it, it still gives me goosebumps today, the, the, the way that they that they moved that. But our role was to maintain that continuity, to bring the evidence back, where we would brief the coroner. An individual would come back into Bryce Norton and would then be taken, after going through the ceremonies at Wooden bassett if you remember those, where, you know, our you know the people would, um, would show their respects to our fallen. They would go to the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford, where there was a team waiting to receive them. Um, and working with a company called Salmark, they reduced the DNA time down to about eight hours. They could give us a DNA result in eight hours if we were dealing with um, disassociated parts uh, of of a deceased. Um, But we would have a full post-mortem. But at that post-mortem were also people from the defense equipment uh, service. And they were there to do R&D. Why did this injury happen? Why did this person and the that was taken in to develop new equipment to protect our troops. Uh, so this learning was going on. Underneath all of this, we've got, I had a team of CSIs under a, a good friend of mine who was the forensic lead, who did all of these. The toll on them was incredible um, and, and is still felt today by them. Did we have the right uh, support in place? No, we didn't. We were still working on. It was part of your job. Just get on with it. Um, But the toll on that was was incredible. Um, And then for my part, as a staff officer and then as a commanding officer of the SIB, there was often the need to brief families face to face. Now, my investigators were either still in theatre or were recovering from theatre. And so I took it upon myself wherever I could to go and do that, gather the information, go and do those briefings myself so that I, you know, I provided a face to those and people that they could shout at sometimes. Why did this happen? You know, you know, and as, you know, as you well know, sometimes you can never establish exactly what took place. So explaining to their solicitors, explaining to um, the families, and just giving them an honest face and actually saying to them, we'll never know that. Um, And why? And it's not, and, you know, it's unhelpful. There was, there were, there were times where it was unhelpful where members of the civilian police who were family friends would say, Oh, well, they didn't do the forensics properly. Well, we did do the forensics properly in given that we had 20 minutes on the ground and people were shooting or bombing us at the time that it was doing that. And you've no experience of that. And and this the, the, also almost at times tacit ignorance that there is no policing outside of UK civil policing. That's not that that is not true. There is a whole world of policing outside of the way that the UK civil police do it. Don't get me wrong, the UK civil police is a gold standard in this world. But the military police, the, the you know, the service police as they are today are trained to operate in environments which you could, the, the civil, civilian police could not even consider. You have to remember, historically, when Northern Ireland blew up, and the, the, the RUC, this, the, the, the um, confidence in the RUC was und, undermined, a number of civilian police officers were taken over, particularly to work in CID, but the bulk of it was Royal Military Police taken from all around the world. They formed three regiments, that went into Northern Ireland of military police to do day-to-day policing. Because that's the environment that when it all goes wrong, that's when you need your that's when you need your service policemen and women.
0: You're listening to part two of my chat with retired Colonel Len Wassell of the British Royal Military Police. In part three, Colonel Wassel and I talk about the challenges of advanced recording equipment, leadership and the rules of engagement.
1: It wasn't part of the official equipment, but individuals did take body cams in. If they record what goes on, then of course it's, it's the best evidence because you can't deny what you're seeing.
0: This and much more next on Protect and Serve. Protect and Serve is a mash Pumpkin production hosted by Oliver Lawrence, research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley, Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. This podcast
1: is part of the ACAST Creator Network.